she said, Dan, Dan, do you remember what we said? We got it out. We've got it all out. Wow. <laughs> and, yeah, it's still quite emotional to think about it because I just didn't let myself imagine that that was going to be even possible. Oh, yeah, I'll always remember that as the moment that my life changed from potentially being going to be over in a, in a matter of months to hopefully now having having a bit longer. Hello and welcome to the 25 Stay Alive podcast, an inspiring, real and raw conversation with Hugo and Willie, two army mates and cancer survivors who are passionate in helping the lives of other young men and women. Welcome everybody to the 25 Stay Alive podcast. I'm Hugo and it's great to be here in Adelaide actually in person with Willie. Welcome Willie. Yeah, g'day Hugo. Actually, this is only our second episode together in person. Yeah, of all the 10 podcasts and we've done two together in person. So I think we've done well. So look, today we're, we're joined by an extremely inspirational guest. His name's Daniel Bryant. Dan was diagnosed with testicular cancer in 2017 mm. and it was stage three at that stage. Throughout his testicular cancer journey, he's had uh, eight operations, four months of chemotherapy, uh, close to 100 nights in hospital. Uh, and the most alarming part is that he was diagnosed, unfortunately, with terminal testicular cancer, and he was given six months to live. In that six months, he had three months living in palliative care in a terminal state. Look, Dan, mate, it's amazing to have you on the show, and I can't wait to explore your story. And so welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Hugo, Willie. Absolute yeah. honour to be here. I'm oh, mate, thrilled. pleasure Thank to you. ask. Trust yeah. us. No, mate, when, when I first, uh, we're obviously both strongly passionate with Movember, and when I first discovered you and discovered your story, I was blown away about what you've had to endure. And I've had uh, what's called one retropreneurial lymph node dissection as part mm. of my testicular cancer, and it's a full-on operation. Mm-hmm. And to put it in perspective, Dan's had three of those, as well as all other operations, lung surgeries and all mm. sorts of stuff. And we'll, we'll explore that we'll explore that yeah. later. But before we get into your remarkable story, we might just uh, hear a bit about you, uh, what you kind of, what you do sure. currently, but also... <laughs> As you put it, you're a young 40-year-old. And for those who can see yeah. Dan in the camera, uh, yes, he is 40. 40. I thought he was like 20. Like, he he uh, looks younger than me. It's quite strange. Uh, Do you still get asked for ID? Um, I haven't got asked for ID for a couple of years, but I, well into my 30s, That's I was so getting good. asked for ID. Um, no, I I've love had, it. I've had my ID um, bounces look at my ID and go, nah, that's fake, when it was real, refusing <laughs> entry. Um, at 30. <laughs> well, that's sad uh, at that yeah, point, yeah. Which is tough to take. But we'll, we'll post some photos as well for those not watching live uh, on the stream and, and you guys will see that he's uh, he's like a Benjamin Button. I think he's yeah. getting younger. <laughs> yeah, incredible. So, so look, we might then take us back. You're obviously 40 now, but mm-hmm. what were you like? What was Dan growing up? Let's yeah, that's sort of Dan in your 20s, Dan at 25. Just, yeah, sure. just talk a bit about yourself, mate. No worries. I um, grew up as... The smallest kid in the class and smaller than every other kid. And I, I think um, I might talk about this a bit later, but I took on a bit of a persona of being that sort of uh, shy-ish and a little bit timid type mm. type kid. And so I took a while to grow into um, who I am and what I'm all about. But a happy childhood and then into um, always really into sport. That was um, number one passion as a kid, one always Used all my birthday wishes to uh, one day play Test cricket for Australia. Yep. It hasn't happened so far, so might um, <laughs> it's uh, probably <laughs> unlikely at this stage. Um, into my twenties, I um, I studied journalism um, straight out out of school and and got a job working um, at, at Port Adelaide 
uh, footy club, and I grew up as a as a Port fan oh, uh, no, here sorry, as, no, a, as a kid. No, so end of uh, end of. <laughs> sorry guys, for sorry, that guys. Just stop. Just switch your mic off. Here. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I might have got got that response. Oh, it's uh, won't pretty judge common. You, won't judge um, you for it. So that was uh, dream come true, and, and I spent ten years uh, working working at Port um, through the two um, thousands when. When we um, finished on top for a few years and, and won one flag, won flag and yeah. um, and I was in the the media team there and um, really immersed myself in in work mm-hmm. um, and got a thrill out of that. So so that was my my twenties with a, a really strong group of friends from the from the footy club and, yeah, and from awesome. school as well. Just doing what twenty year olds do, but also um, travelling with the team and, and having some. Uh, great experiences through work. Lived interstate after that, um, working in radio for Nova in, in Melbourne and, and Sydney. Yep. And then came back to Adelaide to have a go at teaching. Yeah, so nice. had a, a career change. I wanted to move back to Adelaide and, and had a career change and, and became a, a primary school teacher. That pretty well takes me up to when I was diagnosed with cancer, a year after I'd started as a teacher. Mm. I believe it was 2017 when you were first officially diagnosed with, with testicular cancer, but... How long before that do you think it was? And now we'll kind of touch base. We'll get mm. into your your cancer story itself. Did you start noticing anything well before uh, January 2017? Yeah, I don't know when it was, but at some point in 2016, I was in my first year as a teacher in the deep end, as most um, first year teachers would probably oh, yeah. feel, because <laughs> you're straight out of uni. Um, yeah. I, I just did a couple of year um, post grad degree, and suddenly I'm a teacher, and you're meant to be responsible for uh, 28 year six sevens. <laughs> Stressed to the to the max, but did notice that uh, one of my testicles had gotten a little bit bigger. How, no, how big are we talking? Hard to remember, but maybe a third bigger. Yeah. Mm. So noticeable, but um, no pain to go with it. And I really naively considered it might be normal and took it on as my new normal without really considering mm. even for a, a second that... It could have been cancer. It might have been six, yeah, at least six months, I reckon it would have been um, between uh, noticing that and then um, diagnosis in January. And the diagnosis was was actually only because I had started getting severe stomach pain yeah, and wow. um, like couldn't sleep at night, never comfortable during the day, totally disruptive to my life. So at that point, I'm going to the doctor regularly trying to go, what's going on? I can't sleep. I was maxing out on Panadol, whatever, 12 a day or whatever it is, and that wasn't touching the sides. Yeah. Um, and then you were 37 at the time? 37, yep. 37, yep. And so they're only trying to deal with why I might have been getting some stomach pain um, because at this stage my enlarged nut was my new normal. I, mm. I'd completely mm. forgotten about it and never mentioned it until they finally did – they were testing for, for celiac and things like that, and when they finally did a CT scan and found all these in, enlarged lymph nodes, which they said were um, consistent with metastatic cancer, they were trying to find how how that might have been. And yeah. um, the doctor, the day that I found out, um, rang the hospital straight away. Just She was my GP that she just found out with me. She didn't give me the news. She um, had the, the form in front of her and was reading it as I was. And then so she goes, oh, I think I'm going to have to call the hospital here. And and the hospital um, said to her, oh, is there any – he hasn't noticed any change to her testicle at all, has he? And she's like, no, I, I don't think so. I'll just check. And oh, goes, no. oh, Dan, no change to her testicle. And I'm like – Oh, yeah, actually. Oh, no. <laughs> I reckon, yeah, one got yeah. bigger last year. And she's like, oh, this is new information for me. So they said that's that's what it'll be. So um, because that's the first place testicular cancer spreads, as as you know, yeah. um, both know, would both know that 
uh, the lymph nodes in your abdomens where it's first gone and it wasn't just there it had got um into my lungs and up into my neck as well so um, it was, it when, was spreading upwards it. so yeah it had gone from from my nut up, up and made its way up right up through to my neck oh jeez, that's mm. a that's a well all of us here can sort of um, appeal to how how you felt when you were diagnosed. Mm. You know, we've all been diagnosed at some point with yeah. a cancer, and I was actually similar to you. That my doctor found out at the same time as me. Yeah, right. My GP came with me to see an oncologist. Yep. Where I've talked about before that I didn't even know what an oncologist was. Yeah, <laughs> was and I'm so, sitting there googling it like so cancer. Do- like, oh, okay, mm. fair call. Oh, wait, and then, yeah, cancer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, oh shit. They, mm. Oh, this isn't a tongue doctor. Um, yeah. yeah, and then to find out like your GP's there too, mm. and and. Then you sort of, well, no, at least I looked across at them like, okay, you're a doctor, like, cure me. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like, don't you just put stitches and things and, and go from there? Yeah. So, like, I know the sort of, the feeling I went through when it all went down for me is almost like, um, almost like being broken up with, like, so sort of that drop in your stomach. Did you mm-hmm. go through that as well? You don't, your mind's racing. You don't quite know what to think. Yeah. Um, I had a, an hour just sitting out in the waiting room where um, my doctor, because she didn't know I had cancer, so I only had a 15-minute appointment. And yeah. she's oh, just wow. realized while I'm in there that, that I've got cancer. And she's like, we're going to need to deal with this after I finish. So it was about 4 o'clock, and she said, I- I've meant to finish at 5.30. So just get out in the waiting room. I had an hour and a half sitting there going, okay, am I going to call someone? At this stage, she hadn't even really defined it properly for me. I just read the scan report that it said consistent with metastatic um, tumor or something and I didn't entirely process what was going on mm. so I just sat there with my mind racing not really knowing and it was only when I went back in at, at 5 30 and she said I'll I'll call your mum for you and um and she called my mum and, and really spelt it out to mum as um we um expected to be testicular cancer that's that spread through his body and that was yeah. when I got that real yeah drop of oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that I've real got, dropping feeling that that you could, spoke about. Because did you have you had a family um, history like of cancer or did you know much about cancer in particular testicular cancer? No, I no, I didn't, yeah. and I was really really naive. I, I can't believe how naive I was now looking back. Yeah. Uh, Lance Armstrong, I would have known that, but I didn't. I didn't. It doesn't really click it with your like with me. I just because I was, these people are like figures to yeah, you on, on TV. Yeah. They're not. You, it's not us. Doesn't happen to us. Uh, yeah. And I was 37, but I hadn't um, been through any. I had barely had a sick day off work. I hadn't had an operation. I hadn't You're dealt still, with fit, fit and healthy. Hadn't dealt with health stuff, yeah. and I, yeah. I just lived my life naively. You don't think oh, I'm always going to be fine, but you obviously have that mindset because that was how I was. I mean, otherwise you wouldn't ignore a swollen testicle. And, and my mate, I talked to my mates about it, and most of them wouldn't ignore it, which is great. But um, I was one of those guys that just thinks that you just carry on for some reason and that's obviously something now that that you're passionate about and it's uh, for those listening especially those young men uh, testicular cancer is actually you know the most common it is the young man's cancer Mm. and it is the most common cancer for young men you know prostate cancer is typically the older man's cancer uh, for men and testicular cancer is the young man cancer Mm -hmm. and like you Dan didn't know anything about mm. it. I was obviously a lot younger. Some of these things, if you knew that you're more likely to get it before you're 40 than after, then you actually would rethink mm. a mm. swollen testicle um, or a lump on your testicle and actually maybe go, oh, hang on, maybe maybe I need to do something. And, and also the impact that getting it early can have. It's such a, a curable cancer if you if you deal with it with it early. I mean, some guys get the testicle removed, don't require any yeah. any further surgery or um, or chemo did, did and you, that can carry on. Did you get the fake nut? 
No, I didn't. No, we can't compare. Nah, we can't just, compare. No, nah. <laughs> nah, I just got the one down there. When I used to, when I used to drink a lot more than I do now, yeah. but sometimes if I had too few too many, I'd get it out. And uh, but it, it was my way of raising awareness. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you mean? You, would there be a way that anyone could tell though? So you no, you couldn't. And, you, yeah. could, you still can't tell. Yeah. So I'd, I'd like to say I could drop my dax. <laughs> I think YouTube might kick us off. Yeah, <laughs> but no, you, you can't actually tell. Yeah. But it's uh, it is interesting. And I I just chose to purely get it because I was twenty one. Yeah. So I, you know, you're thirty. If I was thirty seven, would have I probably got it? Probably not. To yeah. be honest. But um, so look, mate. Once you got diagnosed, mm. you kind of had to process it all. Mm. Did you realise the severity of it? That obviously you knew it had spread, mm-hmm. but did you realise that? Hang on a second. Not only do I have cancer, but it's stage three mm. and it's spread. Uh, yeah. This isn't good. When they went through my diagnosis, they took the testicle out. They had a look at what cell types it are, and we might not want to get into the nitty gritty of that. But um, there's you know a range of different yeah. cells that it, that it could be, and there's some better than others. And what they'd found was that mine was quite treatable with chemotherapy and so they gave me an 80 percent chance of being alive for five okay. years because um, survive, survival is five years with cancer yes if i'm correct yeah so yeah. based on that five years they gave me they gave me 80 percent. so i'm like well you know it's a four out of five chance and, and i found um, when I, I found when i researched with testicular cancer thanks to larry einhorn who is mm. lance armstrong's doctor who invented the the, the chemo cocktail as he yep. called it it did bring survival rates from about mm. less than 10 percent to to over 90 in most cases mm. um and that is one thing we spoke about offline and we'll, we'll touch on soon at your chemo but it is very very reactive and a good way to, to chemo so so look i suppose even though it had spread for you mate you were still very optimistic mm. that look she had an over 80 yep. percent um survival rate just one other thing on ironhorn if there's anyone listening that um is experiencing testicular cancer and is unsure about the way they're being treated. I read a lot online about how responsive he is to random emails yeah, from I around the world. Yeah, I reached out to him. Did you? Yeah, yeah. yeah so right. I had yeah. similar thing. I had yeah. exactly that. Did he respond? Yeah, he did. Oh, so I, I reached yeah. out to him yeah. and even sent him my, um, like, the pathology reports and stuff like that. And yeah, I well. heard a similar thing and I mm. thought, look, he might not. He's one of the famous buddy doctors yeah. in the world. And within, like, 24 hours Jeez. he sent like a lengthy email and he said you know this is my opinion oh, wow. this is the treatment course you need yeah. you know put him you know you're pretty hopeful to, to cure it and so exactly what dan said mm. he uh believe it or not and if if you are going through something like this hit me up afterwards because i'll give you his direct email because i've still got it and yeah. we'll get back to you and it is pretty amazing yeah man. yeah so that's a brilliant thing and i i had an opportunity when i probably should have done that but didn't and that's when we're getting to when things go wrong for me. But mm. I do want to just mention in terms of that attitude at the start, the day that I found out I had cancer, and this is something that um, I still hold pretty close to my heart and I've carried with me for throughout since that first day I was diagnosed in January 2017. And I, the first thing I wanted to do when I found out was drive up and see my mum. I just knew the impact it would have on her and I wanted to give her a big hug and, and have a cry with her. As I was driving mm. up to see her after I'd found out I had cancer, I had this moment in my head where I decided that this was an opportunity for me to actually change the way I felt about myself mm. as a person and that I could use something. If I'd always seen myself as a little bit timid and shy and not brave, whatever the opposite of, not, of brave is, I sort of saw myself as that. Uh, and I mentioned, like, you know, the smallest kid in school, I was always too scared to, to play footy 
um, because the kids were bigger than me and they might hurt me or I was the keenest cricketer. I was captain because I, I was the most into it, but I bat myself down the order because I didn't want to face yeah, the fast yeah. bowlers. I was always too scared. Well, you certainly break and, out. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I decided if I did this in a way that I felt within myself was bright and made me brave, I could actually revamp the way that I, I saw myself as a person. Mm. And I kept that with me throughout as something where I wanted to change, give myself a chance to change the way I felt about myself. And I have done that to a degree mm. where I am a much more at peace with who I am and the person that I am now Fantastic. as yeah. a result of what there's, I've gone there's through. A, there's a quote that actually, um, as I was reading through, I, I'm guessing this is sort of your first your first post about cancer on your Facebook yes. um, from yep. la, uh, sorry, 2017, so two yep. years ago almost. It was a long um, way into it. I didn't post it all. I, d- yeah. I did it fairly privately for the first, well, yeah, it was about nine months. Yeah, like this lengthy until- post. And the, and the bit that I was reading last night that I reread this morning that really touched me, um, just this quick bit that goes, um, I've lived a life that is worth reflecting on positively, full of wonderful family and friends mm. and enriching experiences through work and travel. Previously, I'd always spent a lot of time uh, thinking uh, about what I hadn't done yet mm. and when there is no more future and forth to look back. If you can make peace with it, what you've done so far, I recommend it. And I think that it, it really hits me a lot mm. of like, and I've spoken about this before with like almost being happy with dying, like as mm. terminal is like, I've done so much of my life. I am almost content with what I have done. Like, I sort of um, look on you as someone who's like, if you were to walk out here and get hit by a bus and die, mm. then it wouldn't be, you'd be like, oh, I'm, I've done everything I've mm. ever wanted to do. Mm, mm. And that really, um, yeah. that bit of the post really, yeah, and you sort of are a living example of that, if if not more so after, like I didn't know you back then, but mm-hmm. what you're saying is almost more so after that, you've become like, you know, really, I'm, I'm going to come out of my shell. I'm just going to do all this stuff while yeah. I can because you've been, yeah. You've sort of faced your maker at some point of like, yeah, I, I am mortal. Like, mm. I can actually die yeah. and I will actually die at some point. Mm. It Hopefully it's not till 50 years <laughs> down the track. Yep. But if it's not, you've come to peace with it it's, that it might may mm. be. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite powerful. Let's uh, let's just track through a little bit now. So you, you've had that, I guess, accepted as best you can. You've gone in, you've had your initial operation, which like you said, for some people, that's all they need to mm. remove that that testicle mm. you've had that operation the recovery for that's you know not not too bad in the scheme of things yep. uh, how long after that then did you commence your chemotherapy uh they needed to get into it pretty quick i yep. think it was it was within a it was like a week and a half um, week and a half straight yeah Jesus. after the operation yeah. that they started chemo. and then how'd you how'd you um, go with your chemo mate chemo was rough but mm. probably the worst part of it for me was the mental battle of I'm having chemotherapy. Yeah, and your life's turned upside down as well. Like I, I couldn't work. So instead sure. of taking on my second year as a teacher, I had to tell them that I couldn't work. I had to move back in with my mum so she could look out for me. She didn't didn't feel like she could work either. So I feel like you've completely turned her life upside down as well. Something like cancer, what you go through, you feel almost guilty that it affects other people. Mm, oh, and yeah. although, although you can't help it, you, you sort of, you see how much pain your mum mm, or your family yeah. or your friends are in because of you mm. and you kind of feel like it makes you feel worse and it's that kind of vicious cycle. So, yeah. yeah I've can... heard you talk about that as well, Willie, but I think in my situation I almost could have helped it or I could have helped it if, if I'd acted on um, the change in, in my body and any change in your body you should go and act on. If I'd acted on that, I could have put my family and friends in a far better position than that, I ended up in. That train of thought, though, is d- dangerous, though, mate. It doesn't do <laughs> yeah. much for your no. mental state, obviously. No, no, and I, I've made peace with it. 
in the way that you approach it and you try and and we've and the strengthening of relationships that I've I've got out of it with my close family and friends and and I feel like I can have much more serious conversations with them now and and we've reached a a deeper level where we we talk about it much more than we used to. And so. you feel a lot closer to your family yeah, since. Yeah. yeah. I'm I'm the same yeah. and I, I know you're yeah, the same absolutely. as well. Mm. That if anything, if for a social aspect, cancer's the best thing that's ever happened to yeah. me. Mm. That it's brought my family so much closer. Like mm. we already already work mm. like close to family. It brought us so much closer together and, and like you said, the ability to have really deep and meaningful conversations mm. again. Uh, well, not again, really for the first time. Yeah, that's a good point. In some ways, I used to be someone, it's a benefit of cancer almost. I used to be someone that shied away from not knowing if you're going to say the right thing or the wrong thing to someone that was going through a hard time mm. and I'd feel like, oh, they wouldn't want to hear from me. I, I'd sort of shy away from that, whereas now I'm much more likely to step up to the plate. I've been through something traumatic and, and hard and, yeah, you might not always say the, the right thing, but the fact that you're there and willing to give it a go and, and in someone's life that's dealing with something hard is much better than than not facing up to it and, and dealing with it. And yeah. that's been one of my one of my learnings um, yeah. that I can have those hard conversations with people going through a hard time, whereas yeah, I couldn't before. For, for sure, mate. So when you were having your chemo, um, were you pretty – what was the outlook or the prognosis like that it would be – pretty uh pretty successful to to eliminate that cancer at mm. that stage and when did you find out that the chemo hadn't really done what it was meant to yeah so during chemo i actually had a lot of positive feedback my the beta hcg and those numbers that they um that they give you through in chemo were dropping rapidly i had that chronic stomach pain that was um affecting me why i went to the doctor in the first place that all disappeared really quickly during chemo so from that perspective i was a lot better really feeling good about how it was working but then a month after the chemo finished i went back in for scans and i already knew before that that the pain had started coming back um, and something was wrong and i tried to get my scans brought forward because i was panicking that that something had gone wrong yeah. but couldn't quite manage to do it i presented at emergency once trying to get them to i went and got my own scans done and presented at emergency <laughs> trying to get them to look at it but yeah, wow. couldn't get any proper answers and then when they eventually did my scheduled scans they're like no nah, it's it's all still there and that was when they found that it, it, it wasn't only just still there it had, it had grown so wow um, and not just growing either yeah it had got to um well, yeah, it got to 20 centimetres by 10 centimetres by 11 Jesus. centimetres, this mass in my in my abdomen. Which, which is like so, a bloody... Was it, like was it a, visible? A it was like a two-litre milk carton. Was it visible bottle. from the from the outside? Like, because um, you're only a really lean guy. I'm a really guy. skinny guy, yeah. yeah so um, you could, yeah. I didn't yeah. at the time, but, um, yeah, the doctors could press on it and feel it. And then yeah. when I took, turned myself side on, I'm like, oh, yeah, holy For shit. For those listening, uh, picture a two-litre... Farmers Union iced yeah. coffee garden. <laughs> South Australia. I don't know why I asked me Farmers Union, but just picture that inside Dan's stomach, mm. the size of that being a cancerous tumour mm. that was growing inside you. When you found that out, obviously, whilst you had done all that chemotherapy and then to find out that, oh, mate, by the way, you've had this tumour that's been growing, what was that like to take in? Yeah, that was when things got really serious so in my oncologist instead of being a bit disorganized with my appointments was suddenly walking me around the hospital to um, meet the uh, head uh, head surgeons and oh, the, uh, um, yeah suddenly took me a lot more serious I remember my name clearly every time from that point because they don't normally get a testicular cancer patient that that um, is at at this point and it was because 
the cell type that I mentioned that was meant to respond really well to chemo, that probably did respond really well to the chemo and, and type. disappeared. But there was another type yeah. they didn't find the first time, which is called teratoma. And um, that doesn't respond to chemo at all. The only option they have is, is to cut it out. So they very quickly started making plans to try to remove the teratoma from my lungs, neck, and the big one in the abdomen. Mm-hmm. So they went and chopped one out of my neck, and they, that was went pretty well, although that's the one that I probably feel the most to this point. I got uh, heaps of numbness all the way out to my shoulder. And Where, around, where's your scar with that, mate? Um, just around the neck here, and you can see, like, there's a big hole. Oh, like, I, yeah, no, yeah. I don't get any fat on this side of my, of my neck job, compared, to, yeah. compared to this one. But And you um, just had some, um, some like, Tumors in there, like yeah. So it was a lymph. It was a lymph node, lymph node that had yeah, swollen, yeah. got up to five five centimeters. Was sti- yeah. So you got a five Sticking centimeter right bloody ch- cancerous yeah. tumor in your neck, <laughs> a twenty centimeter cancerous tumor in your stomach, and one you've more. Got, and lungs. You've got one more. <laughs> you've got another cancerous tumor in your bloody um your lungs, and then the two lungs. Yeah, in so, both lungs. Yeah. So your whole body was Jesus. basically riddled with mm. these tumors. Mm. So they were going to do the lungs last. So we were up to the abdomen and that was the one that was potentially going to kill me. Um, I got to a point where I could barely eat. Uh, it was making me, I was in pain and um, eating food was really difficult because it was pressing on all your organs. So all your internal operations aren't <laughs> aren't liking the fact they got this giant thing in there pushing up against them all. And, oh. and the one that I noticed the most other than the pain was like not being able to eat so at one point i vomited after a bowl of soup like i couldn't get and then i couldn't get more than like a handful of food at a time so So i was wasting away how much much do you weigh now you're you're pretty lean guy yeah i am 58 kilos and what what was the lightest you got got down to 44 44 44 kilos jesus so when you were sitting there and you just found out that you had all these tumors you just had your surgery to remove the neck tumor mm-hmm. which was you know that one, one bit of good news that yep. was a success and you got told look mate next course of action we're mm. going to try and get rid of this bloody mm. milk bottle bloody mm. tumor in your, your stomach or your abdomen were you then given at that stage any prognosis on how serious it was yeah i'm glad you asked that actually because the surgeon oh, i was sitting in the surgeon's office and he made a special he was the head of urology for uh, royal adelaide and he made a special trip in to see me strutted in in his uh, lycra he just got off his bike and he was yep. in the full lycra and he strutted in and he goes oh daniel he's going oh now um yeah there's um conjoined twins and then there's this oh wow i'm like okay <laughs> he said look we'll be able to um he said i'm i reckon it's a two percent chance of you dying on the operating table so that was pretty small one in 50 chance of me dying on the operating table but he said the success, he goes, I haven't attempted something like this. Um, and I'm going to reach out to a colleague in, in the UK and and um, send him your scans and try to get sort of talked through it as best I can. But um, he said, you know, this is far and away the most difficult um, of these RPLNDs I will have ever done. And so just for those people like myself without... With, with <laughs> yeah, both, sorry. Sorry, I'll say with, with both my balls <laughs> and everything intact, what is an RPLND? A retropeneural lymph node dissection. And it's basically when the cancer spreads to your abdominal lymph nodes, they remove basically all your abdominal lymph nodes or most of them uh, where the cancer is spread to. Uh, And by doing that, we're actually talking before (laughs) about it. I um, I personally thought it was a great idea to watch a a YouTube video of the surgery. And and what they actually do, they they literally take out all your internal organs and your intestines. They rest it on your chest. 
wrap it all up like a bloody sleeping bag <laughs> and then kind of crack in and have a go and try removal. So it's a pretty it's a pretty invasive Very operation. Invasive, yeah. And we'll touch on this actually. We might as well lead into it now yeah, because yeah. it's fifty percent chance of bowel blockages and then fifty percent chance of retrograde ejaculation. Um, yeah. And I luckily avoided both of those. Which but- retrograde ejaculation is a dry orgasm. Yes, but I've learned, that's my new thing. I've learned mm. today as well. Yeah, <laughs> and for those, for those listening, it means that you can have a perfectly normal orgasm in the sense of the feeling but you can't nothing actually comes out mm. so but Dan, excuse you, the pun there. it comes <laughs> out uh, exactly. hopefully all the listeners are over 18 uh, <laughs> but dan you can really touch on that so yeah. you had your retropreneurial lymph node section surgery yeah um and was that the because as the listeners will find out you eventually had three of those yes. but for this one was this the one where you had the retrograde ejaculation look to be honest it had actually already got pretty close to that point before I had the operation, okay. which is because the tumour was just pressing on those nerves that they ended up having to cut. Wow. To, um, and it's the it's the cutting of the nerves down in, in that sort of pelvic region mm. that leads to the fact that, how am I going to say this? I want us to say that you can't... That, you can't shoot jizz out, but uh, <laughs> once you uh, what should we, uh, how we say? It ends up in terms of this shot. <laughs> you end up um, it ends up in your bladder, so you're still producing semen, but um, it's ending. It, it ends up when you have an orgasm, it ends up in your bladder, and then you pee it out without realising. So my mates have had great fun making jokes about the fact that I'm going to be standing at a urinal with a couple of blokes looking over sneakily looking over and i'm i'm shooting something else out while, while they're having a pee but they thought it was hilarious but, um, but that's not how it is you just, just look uh, like um cooper's pale yeah. <laughs> so i've tried to look at the positives but it's actually been one of the things that i've struggled with to yeah. get used to as one of the change i've got quite a few permanent sort of changes but you've had frozen sperm because of that yeah so yeah i mean i actually had that done before the chemo because chemo can obviously mess with your fertility. Yeah, for sure. So I had yeah. that done, the frozen sperm done really early on. Because you've got um, that too, really, don't you? Yeah, because we were actually talking about this before we went live, that you had had sperm frozen and then you've actually pulled it. Uh, since. And I'm sort of almost of like any – I almost think any bloke or girl, because it's, it's – ch- oh. It's not reasonably that cheap. Yeah, it's a couple no, hundred bucks. I don't, a year. I don't know why I did to us. Yeah. I'm probably. I um, should go back and get some more done. Yeah, because um, I am doing a fertility test again to actually see if the chemo did make me infertile. Mm. And I was actually sort of thinking about that. Well, even if it is that I'm infertile, I, I am fertile. I'll probably still keep it just in case yeah. it's an accident or mm. why not or, yeah. or whatever. I think for people in Australia, especially the the cost isn't that much mm. and it's probably worth that sort of backup security if you want to have a family. I'm actually going to get yeah. mine tested soon as well, mate. So maybe, yeah. I don't know if we'll meet it, meet at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what are you doing here? Yeah. We'll oh, share a fun. room. <laughs> <laughs> we go back to back. Yeah, there's only one room. That's fine. <laughs> uh, right, back to the yes. back to the story. So, okay, so you had that first retropreneurial lymph node dissection yep. so surgery. Um, and your surgeon walked into his lycra, or sorry, the urologist, pretty confident, saying, "Look, mate, it's uh, it's rare. It's uh, he can he compared it to conjoined twins as far as mm. difficulty goes, but he said you got two percent chance of potentially dying, dying on, on the, the table. operating table. Mm. If you're happy to just jump straight into how that one went, I, I woke up from that RPLND, and I was being wheeled out of the. I was being wheeled into the. What's the next bit called you go into? The way the um, recovery. I see. I was being wheeled into. CCU. I was just um, straight into that day recovery. I was being wheeled out of that. And I came to straight away and um, they weren't expecting me to be be sort of with it. But as they were wheeling me out of there, I started going, "Uh, tumor, is it gone? I just, I 
had a sense of what was going on. I just started saying, is it gone? Tumor gone, tumor gone. And so um, the surgeon wasn't there, but the um, registrar was with me and, and he felt like he just had to bend down and, yeah. and answer and say, no, we, we couldn't get it. It's, it's, it's still there. And, and I said, um, clear as day, I remember just saying, so I'm fucked. <laughs> and he said, well, I wouldn't put it like that, but it is going to take your life. Uh, so, I'd put so it exactly is, like that. Like, so so you you so, you're still I'm, under anaesthetic, mm. kind of half asleep, half awake, just waking up. You just had this surgery, and you've literally just been told that mm. look, we couldn't remove the tumor. It's going to take your life. Mm, yeah. um, shit, that's that's a lot to process. Yeah. So I found out later that they they tried to remove it for about six hours, and I'd had two significant bleeds like that it was because it was wrapped around so many veins and capillaries in difficult places that they every time they tried to cut um this um teratoma away from there they'd nick a a vein Mm -hmm. and i'd bleed significantly so they almost lost me in the surgery i was almost at two percent and yeah so they stitched me back up without being able to get any of it out and said that it was inoperable and that um had six months or or less to live and that was when the they referred me over to palliative care. So they said, look, there's there's nothing more we can do. There's no sort of treatments to slow it down or, or anything like but that. Like you touched on before with this particular cancer, yeah. chemo was effectively yeah. useless. So this teratoma type doesn't respond to radio or, or, or chemo. chemo. And it normally doesn't grow, but mine was in a rare situation where it was growing teratoma syndrome. So mine was growing rapidly and it was going just the... It was going to grow enough to shut down organs to, to stop me from living in the in the next six mm-hmm. months and and i was already not eating because um it was pressing on on my on my guts how did you let your i know you've touched on your mum before you're obviously mm. very close with your mum how did you let her know that mm. hey mum the surgery wasn't successful mm. i've got six months to live so the surgeon rang my family and gave them the, the news and they came in already knowing the news okay. from from mm. the surgeon so i didn't didn't break the news yep. but i did have to break it to friend uh, cl- you know close mates and, and people like that i just remember my sister in particular just saw like walked in the door and saw me lying there and she just had tears streaming down her face and and looked away and and yeah walked back out from where she came like she couldn't do it there there and then and things like that just yeah, showed me that obviously. I mean, you you know the impact it's going to have, but were you scared? Um, yeah, I was scared, but I actually had a in the hospital. I had an overwhelming sense of trying to do something like you guys are doing out of it, and trying to use the time I have left to be as positive and make as big a difference as I could. And so I spent the couple of weeks in hospital planning. Not dissimilar, not a podcast, but not too dissimilar to yeah. some of what you two have talked about. And I was quite, I got quite motivated by it and, and and I contacts in in media and things that I thought could help me out to get my story out there. And I remember being inspired by people like yourself in the past, Willie. Um, I'd watched You Can't Ask That on the ABC and seen the, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but yeah, there, yeah. there's a... Yeah, there's a um, terminal um, patient um, episode of that and just remember being overwhelmed by a positive attitude of someone that 
knows that they're going to die and the impact that can have. And for a couple of weeks, I actually got kind of motivated by that and maybe Mm. it was a distraction. I don't know. But I got home a few weeks later and I, you know, it was just, I wanted to write my story and I spent my first week trying to write as much as I could. But I almost, yeah, I lost my way a bit with it Mm. and the anxiety of knowing that I was going to die sort of took over and I I wasn't well. I was on um, fentanyl patches, which is a pretty serious um, painkiller. So this is what, you know, palliative care is just there to look after your pain. And so, and, that, and that's a good point you raised. It's mm. not like you had this six months to go explore the world and travel yeah, around no, and I wasn't like enjoy that. it. You, no. were, you <laughs> I were was deteriorating. Lying, yeah. I was lying in front of a heater. It was the best I could come up with exactly. each day. Yeah. And I'd take my mind off off um, off dying by Game of Thrones season seven was airing at the time, and um, I'd watch watch that, and I could get captivated in in that for an hour, but then like that real that feeling of it absolutely hitting you in the guts. Oh. It's like you've woke, like I watched Game of Thrones for an hour and I haven't remembered that I'm dying for an hour. That escapism almost. And yeah. it may, I actually yeah. woke, it's like I, you wake up from a dream after that hour and you're like, oh, fuck, I'm dying. As you're getting closer to death, mm-hmm. how did mm. you as a person change? There's a, yeah, quite a few things that, that changed. So one was some of the silly things like, Watching Game of Thrones, I got frustrated that I wouldn't know how it was going to end because I knew that it was going to take a year until season eight came out. And Mate, I'm like, well, I, I I'll be dead that, by I then. I thought so. that before I had cancer, <laughs> that I might die of old age. <laughs> <Yeah, before laughs> you know, yeah. So little <laughs> things would always annoy me. Donald Trump came into, in, became president, and I'm like, fuck, he's still going to be president when I die. I'm not going to get him see, get to see him get impeached. <laughs> or Crows were having a great year. I'm a big port man. I'm like, fuck, the Crows are going to be the reigning premiers <laughs> when I'm dead. Mate, so don't, just don't stupid, bring up that <laughs> stupid stuff like that bothered me. But then... <laughs> Serious stuff was that um, I spent time reflecting on my life. Like I'd always judge myself by my career or relationship or those more sort of things that people see about you and, and how you're living in life. And that was how I defined success in my own life. And so I'd always be thinking about, okay, you know, what am I going to do next? What's next in my life? And and also the big experiences that I'd had. So, you know, I'd look forward to, and I've heard you guys talk about about this as well I'd, I'd look forward to those big experiences of you know overseas travel or you know big concerts and things like that whereas i'm now in palliative care i'm only able to lie in front of the heater it was it was winter did you have to write your will or those yeah things? i went and, and, and got a will i did a tour of a hospice that i chose to die in rather than die at home um so I, you i was preparing to to die, um, some tasks yeah. around that. But I also had the chance to think about my life and, and, and the life that I'd lived. And I actually made peace with what I'd done. So for the first time in my life, I thought back on it as, yeah, it was only 38 years, but that's still a lot more than a lot of people yeah. get. And yeah. Amazing outlook. And I had experiences in my life that a lot of people don't have in 90 years and I was excited when I thought back about how enriched it had been by family and friends and travel and the big exciting work experiences 
um, that I had. And yeah, I, I got to a point where I was like, okay, I can die having lived a life that was not as long as I would have liked. And, and there were lots of things that people would look at and say that I didn't do. And, and, and that makes it um, less of a life in, in their eyes. They'd feel sorry for me not having brought up a family or, or whatever. But, to, but for you, to me, yeah. I was like, no, this is, this is okay. Correct. I'm okay with what this was. And, and I felt I had a lot of um, anxiety and, and, difficulty accepting what life was going to be like for people that loved me especially mm. my little brother and sister that are so much harder to handle death when you when you're yeah. a kid and, and I've got a much younger brother and sister who are 11 and 9 now and, and a nephew who's who's six and just thinking of those yeah of what life was like for, for people and and I felt silly dying from it when it's something that's not meant to meant to kill you well if i'd if i'd done the right thing early on and yeah it felt awful for people that were going to lose me what was your mum like through um, this whole time mate? yeah she's she's pretty special she coped by making herself totally involved in in every appointment and immersing herself in the learning about it and the retaining all the knowledge and um, information that, that we received and listening to me and being there when I could talk about anything, I, she was the person that I could talk to about my will and um, she came up with a couple of ideas of, of what I could include in my will that I found really comforting. Can you share that with us? Or oh, It was just around um, how to leave something for yeah, my little brother and sister and, yeah, and, my, and my nephew, uh, just something that would be as an ongoing thing for them. And including my mates as well, so mm. that there's some money there for my mates to remember me on it, um, however they wanted to, to spend it. And That's special, yeah. Yeah, just the, having the conversation about what I might like them to be able to do with remembering me um, was, yeah, I found it quite comforting. And, and the fact that mum could have that conversation with me where plenty of people couldn't there yeah. when did it start all changing so <laughs> when you became a, a chance a, a door opened up for yeah a chance for you. so i'd posted on a testicular cancer the testicular cancer forum at some stage actually before i was given a terminal diagnosis and and the guy that runs that was in america and he'd suggested to me that there were two testicular cancer oncologists in australia that were particular specialists that had written papers on testicular cancer and were sort of ahead of the rest in terms of their understanding and they were in one was in Melbourne and one was in Sydney and I was in Adelaide and I'd kept that in my back of my mind and and as I was going through the the dying part the terminal part it just sort of kept popping back into my head that I'd be interested in what they thought because it is rare to die of testicular cancer and I thought that they might even just if they were interested in in someone that had got this growing teratoma syndrome that is so rare, you know, they might have some, there might be some sort of trial that they could put me on, but also they might be able to learn something from my condition that could help someone down the track. So you reached out to them. So I looked them up, the the two oncologists that I was recommended by this um, testicular cancer forum, and one of them, yeah, the guy in Melbourne was at um, the Peter McCullum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. And they got back to me within a couple of weeks and, and said that they'd see me for, for an appointment over in Melbourne. So so you're, you're on your deathbed, you've yep. basically given up all hope of, of living past the expectant six yep. months, but you got given this little yeah. light. Mum and Dad packed up the car and drove me over to Melbourne. I was flat in the back um, because lying flat was a lot better for me than, than sitting up. So 
lay flat in the back while um, mum and dad, who aren't together, but um, patch things up to do it, to yeah. do it together, and put uh, first. and put me first, and, and drove me over to Melbourne, and I had an appointment. The um, oncologist that I was recommended to said, uh, "There's no trial that I know of, or anything in particular that I can do." Um, I'm like, why did I actually go? What am I doing here? In the back of the car, come here. They said, um, he, but he said, but if you've got an extra day, I'll get you a, an emergency appointment with my surgeon and at least see if he he wants to try operating. And I thought, well, they already tried the operation and um, and and they couldn't get any of it, of it out. Like they said, it was wrapped around. You know, I was stuck to all my veins too tightly. And, um, yeah, met with him and, and he rang me back. He said that it, it was a multi, multiple team. It wasn't just going to be him that he'd need other another yeah, two other surgical yeah. teams that would need to be involved. So he'd consult with them and, and see if they were up for it. And he rang me up about another week later and said, um, if, you, if you're willing, we're, we're willing to give that retroperitoneal lymph node dissection another go. And he just said that he thinks that his team was potentially – more experienced to be able to get some of it out at least and give me a little bit longer it's a serious operation to go through as you well know mm. Hugo they oh. cut you open from your sternum down right down to as low as they can go in your pelvic yeah. bone um, so it's a huge cut and then yeah putting all your your organs back in after they've taken them all out your bowel and everything it doesn't work for mine didn't work for a couple of weeks like yeah, you go yeah. through quite a few few bit of trauma to your body yeah it's and my, i was obviously already in such a bad way so then to undergo that while you're in that state where i could you know barely move was a, a huge risk so once you went under the knife um how long i suppose were you under the operating table for that was 11 hour operation i lost 10 liters of blood which I thought sounded like a lot, but then I re- read that you only start with five, so in your whole body. So I've lost ten liters of blood when I only had five to lose. So they were just cycling it pump through it. in yeah. and out as, as they're doing the surgery. So I woke up, um, and I, I'll never forget it. I was this time I woke up in a real daze, and I was um, not sure what was real and what wasn't, and and I was sort of feeling like I'd been told that they'd got my tumour out but I didn't know if I dreamt it and I I had a big breathing tube down my throat so I couldn't speak but when I was conscious enough um, when the surgery team came back I clearly remember them it was um, the registrar her name was Sarah and she was amazing she said Dan Dan do you remember what we said we got it out we've got it all out wow (laughs) yeah, it's still quite emotional to think about it because I just didn't let myself imagine that that was going to be even possible. It's but amazing, mate. I, I, yeah. I think I had my eyes shut or I wasn't quite with it, but I just remember reaching out to where, because I couldn't say anything, but reaching out to where the voice was coming from and um, she put her hand in between my, my two hands and I just shook it as like vigorously wow. as I could because that was the only, do, yeah. only way that I could show like yeah. my, yeah. And I can see how emotional it is. And it is, I don't know about you guys, same with me, I'm sort of, it's, I'm emotional for you. It's, mm. it's just, it's such a tough thing to go through. Mm. Oh yeah, I'll always remember that as the moment that my life changed from potentially being 
going to be over in a, in a matter of months to hopefully now having having a bit longer. Mate, it's it's very oh. powerful to hear you say. You can clearly see that you still get quite emotional talking <laughs> about it, and it's mm. you can see why it's such an emotional time in your life. Going from literally on your deathbed being told that that was it to yeah. having that last little bit of hope that you just thought maybe yeah. just maybe let's give it a crack. Like, let's give it a crack. It's gonna happen. At best, mm. it might give me six months. You yeah. don't know. Even but if then, you die on the operating table, yeah. Yeah, you've cut a couple of months yeah. off. Yeah, I, I knew I needed to uh, yeah. to have given it. But then they're to wake up, and not only have they taken some out, they've taken the whole thing yeah. out. Yeah, that's... and at that stage, you're just like, holy shit! Mm. Like you've just almost just been given a second life. Mm. And what was that doctor's name again? Sorry. Jeremy Goad Jeremy is Goad. the surgeon. Yeah. And, Sounds like um, a legend. I still yeah. I still go and see him every three months for my scans yeah. now, and I wrote him a letter of what wow. it meant to me, and uh, and I wrote a letter to my GP as well that enabled me to have the appointment appointment over there. And um, her name's Emily Roxburgh. She's up at Belair in in, in Adelaide, and um, yeah, both of them and other things that happen along the way. Um, my mate that put me onto the testicular cancer forum and, and the guy in America that told me about the expert in Melbourne, all of them had a um, flow-on effect of, and I've told them all. No, no it's, 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 yeah, it's an ama- amazing thing to hear you say that, Dan. And, and look, mate, I suppose it, it didn't necessarily end there. You still had mm. to have, I understand, another RPL and yeah. Richmond lymph node dissection surgery, and you had to have some surgery to remove part of your lung. Yes, so both lungs. Both lost, lungs. Um, 10% of each lung. Those surgeries aren't too scary compared to um, compared to what I had. The recovery from those isn't too bad. Having to go back to the RPLND again was, was difficult. So that was, um, they said they got it all, but in the end when they scanned again three months later, there were some tiny bits that had grown out that, that they'd missed. Yeah. So, and they were in some, some difficult <laughs> spots and one of them is actually still in there. Um, and that one isn't actually growing at the moment, so they're just watching that one. But, but they did have to do one as part of the RPLND RPL in um, July last year. They had to go quite down low into my um, groin, like top of my right leg, and that one was really <laughs> difficult. Um, they um, actually, as part of the surgery, they removed a vein and had to um, recreate it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They recreated a vein using the tissue from a cow's heart, the outside of a cow's Jesus. heart. Jesus. So it was incredible surgery, but um, that's holding up so far. And, yeah, there's plenty of stuff like the lymphedema in my right leg that, that I um, struggle with and, um, yeah, a lot of other numbness and, and things that you deal with. Yeah. But from from where I've, I've been, I am now back working full-time this year. And, and um, How long and, did it take, mate, from recovery? Obviously, you you recovered. You said you're working back full time. What was mm. that length? It was. It's about a, like a four month recovery from the for me yeah. for those RPLNDs before I could work a day. And that's just to work though. Um, but then you obviously yeah. have to build yeah. up your strength. Yeah, and exactly. And I'm still and not. I'm still nowhere near. And that takes a lot where time, I was. Yeah. But I can. I can play around a golf. I can. I can do. I can stand at a concert for three hours. Like some of the things. Well, you're not lying <laughs> in front of a heater. Some of, <laughs> exactly. Some of the things that <laughs> are important to me. I can. All, all the things that were really important. I'm not going to um, do an ultra marathon anytime soon. <laughs> really, but, uh, <laughs> but I can... might have to fake me. Willie's dead. So what, what's looking like for the next five or ten years for you? Like the near but long term. Yeah, I think um, obviously I'm, I'm a high risk at the moment of, a, of a returning uh, until you get to that five year mark. Uh, fingers crossed for you, mate. Yeah. You, you yeah. get to that. So for those of you who don't know, five years survival, five years without it returning is seen as a survival. Uh, survival complete remission. For cancer, almost, yeah. complete remission. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, I'm a long way off that. There's still a spot there that they will probably 
cut out at, at some stage, I would imagine. So I'm probably looking like having one more pretty serious yeah. operation where they'll dig into my chest and, and hopefully remove. It's in an awkward spot. So when that starts growing rapidly again, they'll they'll move pretty quickly to, to hopefully take that out. So it's still a big unknown. So, um, so you've, you've still got significant hurdles to overcome. Yeah. And yeah. Look, that's understandable, but I suppose looking past all that and seeing that where you were literally like willie just mentioned lying in front of a heat up on your mm. deathbed do you have a couple of those bucket list things where you <laughs> thought that at one stage you would never ever experience mm. and now you think oh, i want to experience that mm. you know what though it's not like that for me at the moment it's yeah. doing simple things i can get i can turn on happiness almost instantaneously whenever i want at the moment I like, like I, yeah that, that's i can thing. I'm living a life that I probably would have looked on as being less than what I would have hoped for or less than it even was um, six or seven years ago. How I judged my life based on career, relationships, all of those sorts of external things, I'm at a lower point in those at the moment than I was 10 years ago. You appreciate those little things. I am... I'm much happier in myself and it it doesn't bother me. I had a 40th last month i would never have had a 40th if i knew that i was going to be in this career relationship lifestyle situation that i'm in at the moment like i'm living i'm still living with my mom and some things that i would have judged as negatively i no longer judge as negatively for from what for what i went through that's amazing it's such an incredible I, yeah i've made much more peace with myself and who i am and mentally and you're in a things. really good way i am yes. yeah amazing. so i am just enjoying doing some basic things, catching up with mates, and uh, we just—I can love just time with family. My—I've got a niece as well as a, a nephew now, and and little moments um, with them I can appreciate so much. And I am going to go to Japan in the middle of the year, and, yeah, and awesome. that—that'll be awesome. But I don't have those things where I feel like I have to go yeah. and do all that now. Sure, if they happen, fantastic. But. I'm going to make sure I just enjoy day-to-day living as much as I can. Now, I that's a take-home for everyone. You, you literally have been given a new lease of life. Yeah. Yeah, and it's I given have. you this yeah. whole new perspective on life. Mm. And it's made you really value and appreciate what matters in your life, yeah. which I think is extremely powerful. And to hear you say that you can literally turn on happiness <laughs> is such a powerful yeah. thing. Oh, yeah. Considering Incredible. where you've been. Mm. And I think you could teach people so much from what you've been through and, and on that you've learned so much about yourself mm. and I think no, like there's very few people in this world that will actually experience what you've experienced as far as the the mental side of accepting death mm. and the mm. fact that you're literally on your deathbed mm. and then how you've overcome that and how you've got that new lease of life yeah. is there one particular thing that you could really or you want others to take like away a send home message a send home yeah. message yeah there's the medical side of it and we, we touched on that and there's Movember that do a fantastic job. They spread the message that that I would have loved to have um, had clear in my head when I first realised that one of my nuts was was bigger than the other. You've got to act on that as well. So it's one thing to know your nuts, and I didn't regularly check them. It was just through day to day living that I yeah. became aware that one was bigger. I, what I needed to know then was that I needed to go straight to a doctor. Testicular cancer is a young person's, young man's cancer, and you're much more likely to get it in your twenties. Is the most mm. is the most common. So, go and get that checked. Um, get it. Get onto it early. That's the medical side. The um, mental state side. I don't quite know how to wrap it up other than what I already talked about to mm. you guys in terms of the way that I see my life now and and the way that I've been able to make peace with 
who I am and appreciating the small things in life. I know you guys know it and are able to talk about it. It feels like the secret to happiness is being able to look up. I live up in near, in Belair, which has a lot of big gum trees, and I, I, until I was dying, I never really looked up at them and just looked at them. And I found them quite beautiful. I, I could just look at them and, and take them in and find happiness through that. Yes, and, yeah. and it felt powerful to be able to look at that and be amazed by them where I'd never really looked at them before. It's put my own situation in perspective and yeah. I think people can listen to that and go, you know what, it's, it's so true. Oh, um, yeah. Go appreciate those little things in life because life's pretty precious. And it's so oh, easy to just get so. caught up in the bullshit and mm. not just stop and what's going well now and what... Mm. We're so lucky in Australia. Yeah. Oh, Daniel, we could yeah. talk to you for hours. Yeah. It's, it's been an absolute, absolute pleasure. You started saying growing up, you know, you, you didn't look at yourself as being brave, but I think it's fair to say that all the listeners listening can look yeah. at you and go, mate, not only are you an absolute inspiration, but you're, you're brave in what you've gone through and sharing your story. And, uh, yeah, thanks again for joining us, Dan. You've been listening to the 25 Stay Alive podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify to get fresh new weekly episodes. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 25 Stay Alive. And feel free to send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.